If everyone would like to open their Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 to 66. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in in his new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This morning, I want us to have a clear picture of two things as we go through this passage. One is the awesomeness of God and His Word. His Word that does not change. His Word that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The second major thing that I want us to grasp is the need to boldly, to step out boldly for Jesus in faith and in action and to trust Him, going public with Jesus. And as we finish up the Gospel of Matthew over the next few weeks here, we come to the point this morning in our narrative where we find that Jesus is dead. He's been crucified. He gave up his spirit. Now much is made about the events leading up to and including the resurrection of Christ. And much is made about the resurrection of Christ. And rightfully so, because without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no victory uh, over sin and death. There's no eternal life. But between the crucifixion and the resurrection, there is the burial of Jesus. Now, there haven't been probably a lot of sermons. I haven't heard a lot of sermons preached about the burial of Jesus. I don't think anybody has probably taken a life verse from this passage of Scripture, uh, nor have you probably committed these verses to memory to help you in times of difficulty. But the burial of Jesus Christ is as supernatural and as miraculous as all the other events in his life, from birth to resurrection. From his birth to his burial to his resurrection, everything is controlled by God the Father. Nothing takes place by happen chance, nothing takes place by coincidence, because everything that happens is to to fulfill a divine purpose and prophecy. Even his burial then becomes a testimony to his kingliness and his divinity. And it's another proof that he is, in fact, none other than the Son of God who he claimed to be. 
And we're going to see this in three different people or groups of people as we go through. The first testimony actually comes through Joseph of Arimathea. The second comes from Mary Magdalene and the other Mary uh, in verse 61. And the third, interestingly enough, comes through the chief priests and the Pharisees, which we're actually going to be looking at next Sunday. And we're going to see how each one ultimately speaks to the truthfulness of Christ's claim to be the Son of God. And this is important because down through the centuries, up until this very day, the world has been trying to discredit Jesus by trying to prove that he was not ever the Son of God. Now, Joseph of Arimathea is the first focal point in the, the story or the narrative of the burial of Christ. And we don't know a lot about this man. We do know enough to really see some remarkable things. Let me give you just a little bit of a background to, to set this up and to see how Joseph of Arimathea is used by God to fulfill prophecy. Now, there are a number of prophecies that were fulfilled in this process, and we're going to be t- taking note of these, but there are two very specific main ones that I want to deal with. One is from Isaiah, from the Old Testament, and the other is from the New Testament, given by Jesus Christ himself. Now, you'll probably remember in Isaiah chapter 53 that that chapter is devoted to the death of Christ. It talks about the fact that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions and, and uh, bruised for our iniquities. It talks about him being taken from prison unto judgment, and on and on it goes. It describes the meaning of the death of Christ. Then in verse 9 there, in chapter 53, it says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, says it was an assignment for him. Assignment for him to be placed with criminals in a a criminal grave. But that didn't happen. But instead, he was with a rich man in his death. Now, that rather strange and obscure prophecy in that one little verse would be kind of difficult to understand until we come to the burial scene of Jesus. So hang on to that just a moment. The second prophecy that we want to take a look at is from the New Testament, from Jesus himself, and we find that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, which we've looked at uh, a little while ago, and it's very precise. Jesus says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Have you ever thought about that prophecy by Jesus? What is the mark of a true prophet? That he's right 100% of the time. So what happened here? The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here's a question. How do you get three days and three nights out of Friday evening to Sunday morning? It's impossible. Some try to explain it away as, ah, just a figure of speech. Yeah, three days, three nights, basically. But Jesus didn't say the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. He was very precise, three days and three nights. Is that really important? 
Well, yes, because if Jesus was only in the tomb two nights, then he was wrong. And he can't be wrong. Now, God uses Joseph of Arimathea to fulfill both of these prophets, uh, prophecies excuse me, as his human instrument. So Joseph actually gives testimony to the deity of Christ as he is used to fulfill prophecy. So what's going on with the whole three days, three nights thing? I hadn't actually thought about that until two weeks ago when my friend Roy brought it up and he messed up my whole sermon preparation time. Thank you, Roy. I spent two weeks on this. <laughs> um, fascinating, actually. There's, but there's got to be an explanation. There's got to be an explanation. Let me give you a truth or an axiom about Scripture. We cannot change Scripture to fit our understanding. Rather, we need to change our understanding to fit Scripture. Why? Because God's Word is truth. That is true from Genesis 1.1, where Scripture says, in the beginning God created, all the way to the end of Revelation. And one of the things that I've been trying to do, and I don't know if you've been catching it as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew here, is to show how precise and exacting God is in His Word. The words God chose to be a part of his word are the exact words that he wanted to use to express exactly what he wanted us to know. Down to the articles, the adjectives, the nouns, the verbs, the verb forms. And as the saying goes, words have meaning. And God was and is the ultimate wordsmith. You remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will be by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The jot and the tittle are the words that he used. What are they? The jot is a third letter in the Hebrew alphabet and the smallest of all letters, and it looks like an apostrophe. The tittle is even smaller and is a tiny stroke of the pen that changes one letter to a different letter in Hebrew. The example I've given here is the R changes to a D just with that tiny little tip at the end of the first letter. So when people say, you know, we've got to change the Bible to conform to the times of today, God said, it's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. So just because we don't understand something in Scripture, just because something may not seem to make sense to us, doesn't mean that we can jump to conclusions or make assumptions or try to change the meaning of Scripture to fit our understanding. Again, we cannot change Scripture to fit our understanding. We have to change our understanding to fit, fit Scripture. So let's keep that in mind as we go through this passage today. So how can Jesus be right if he died on Friday and rose on Sunday? Well, he can't. Both can't be true. If Jesus said the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, according to our axiom, that's the truth. If Jesus spoke it, that's the truth. Which means our assumption 
listen carefully, our assumption of his dying on Friday must be wrong. That's what threw me for a loop this week as I began looking at this. And it turns out we've jumped to that conclusion. Now, why do I say that? There are a couple clues in Scripture that we usually miss in solving this apparent contradiction. The first one is in John chapter 19, verse 31, where it says, Now it was the day of preparation. They're talking about the day Jesus died. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. A special Sabbath. What does that mean? Oh, we'll come to that in a minute. That's clue number one. The second clue is actually found in the Greek text that most of our English translations miss because on the surface it doesn't really make sense. And that's found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, where we read in English, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now, if you were to look at the Greek text, the word Sabbath is actually plural. So it'd be, it be uh, meaning Sabbath. So it would read after the Sabbaths at dawn, they went to look at the tomb. Well, it turns out that year there was a double Sabbath, two Sabbaths back to back. Let me try to explain without getting too bogged down in the weeds. Okay, hang in there with me. I I found this fascinating. I hope it'll make sense to you. In the Old Testament, there were special days in connection with special feasts. There's Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, etc. There are a number of others. Besides the regular Sabbaths on Saturdays that came every Saturday, these feast days were also considered special Sabbaths. And all the rules of the Sabbath day applied. No work, no buying, no selling, no preparing. And if you go back to Leviticus chapter 23, in the Jewish calendar, the Passover was always on the 14th of the month of Nisan. Now, it's not always the Thursday or a Friday. It's the 14th, whatever day that would fall on. The first day of the week of Passover was not considered a Sabbath, but rather the day of preparation. The next day, the 15th of Nisan, would be the day of unleavened bread, again from Leviticus 23, which was the first day of the seven days of feasting that made up the Passover week that they were beginning to celebrate. And this was considered one of the special Sabbaths. Then on the day after the Sabbath, the regular Saturday Sabbath, according to Leviticus 23, was the Feast of First Fruits. Now, here's what's fascinating. If we plug in our days of the week, our days of the week, into the days of Nisan that particular year, Passover would have been on Thursday until 6 p.m. when the special Sabbath of unleavened bread would begin from 6 p.m. to the next 6 p.m. The day of preparation, after 6 p.m., then they would eat the meal. So they prepared during the day. In the evening, they would eat the Passover meal together. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a special Sabbath, would then be on Friday, according to Leviticus chapter 23. Then you have the regular Sabbath on Saturday, which gives you two Sabbaths. Special Sabbath, regular Sabbath, back to back. And Sunday was then the first... A feast of first fruits, which followed the Sabbath. 
The Feast of First Fruits also plays part in the resurrection of Jesus. Remember when the earthquake took place? We talked about that. What happened when the earthquake took place? The rocks broke, tombs broke open. Many of the saints did what? They came walking out of the tombs. Verse 50 says, though, that they didn't come out until after Jesus rose. And the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits. Isn't that interesting? The first fruits, the first one of those who had fallen asleep. And when did Jesus rise from the dead? On the feast of first fruits. Isn't that cool? Scripture is amazing. So what does this all day uh, all mean? Jesus had to die on the day of preparation for Passover because he was the the sacrificial lamb, the final one. And that's what the Passover is all about. That's a day when they were slaughtering all the lambs to prepare for the Passover meal that night. And that was Thursday, not Friday. So Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. Thursday morning. The darkness came over the earth from 12 noon until 3 in the afternoon. Jesus gave up his spirit at 3 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. On Thursday, he was in the grave by 6 p.m. before the special Sabbath started. Now, if we go back to John chapter 19, verse 31, it says, Now it was a day of preparation, again, referring to the day Jesus was crucified, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Then he goes on to say, Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross, crosses during the Sabbath, still referring to the special Sabbath, Friday, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. And we'll look at that in a moment. So why do I say all this? Why all these details? I don't care, Pastor. Folks, Scripture is amazingly accurate. Always. We go back to our axiom about Scripture. We cannot change Scripture to fit our understanding. We have to change our understanding to fit Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 44, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus had to be in the tomb before 6 p.m. Thursday because that would have been the beginning of the special Sabbath. And the men wouldn't have been able to do the embalming and the the burial and things of that on the Sabbath. So Thursday, day one, and we're talking about the daylight. And to put that in historical context for you, the Talmud, which is the Jewish commentary on, on, uh, on tradition and scripture, says this, A day and a night makes one ona, one day, and a part of an ona as a whole. So counting a part of Thursday is Thursday. So being in the grave before 6 p.m. would be considered the first day Thursday. So you have the daylights of Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, three days. And he's in the tomb Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night, three nights. Three days and three nights. And Jesus had to have risen somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. the next morning because the two Marys arrived at the tomb just before daybreak, 6 a.m., Sunday morning, the day of the new day. The Feast of first fruits. So, are we going to have a good Thursday service rather than a good Friday service? No. Because what we celebrate is not the days. We celebrate what took place. That is what is important. 
But again, the point I'm making in all of this and the charts and everything else is that God's word is always precise and it's always right. It's often our understanding of it that needs to be corrected. Now, let's go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, and notice verse 56, uh, 57. As evening approached. Now, it's important to understand that this evening, that they had two evenings. They had an early evening and a later evening. This evening they're talking about is the early evening of the Jewish day, which is from 3 to 6. The closing out of the day. And it's getting close to 3 o'clock. As evening is approaching, as it's getting closer to 3 o'clock, And then the special Sabbath day begins at 6. So they've got this three-hour period of time to work with. And if we jump back to John 19, verse 31 again, it says, Now it was the day of preparation, and and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, special Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, there are two things to note quickly here in that as well. Why didn't they want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath or overnight? Well, that too was part of God's law. Everything is to fulfill God's law. It's amazing. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23, we read, If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole you must leave the body you must excuse me you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight in this case the cross be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse isn't it ironic that the Jewish leaders were so concerned about keeping God's law as they were killing his son why break their legs Because they had to use their legs to push up when they're on the cross to expand their chest enough to take a breath. By breaking their legs, that would become impossible and they would die of suffocation within minutes. So Pilate orders that to be done. And in verses 32 and 33 of John 19, it says, The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other... But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Why? Did they figure, ah, no sense in doing that right now? No, I think it's because that too was fulfillment of the law of God and prophecy. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, it's giving the regulations of the Passover meal and using the sacrificial lamb. And it says this, It, talking about the Passover lamb, must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. That was a command concerning the sacrificial lamb. Jesus, therefore, being the final sacrificial lamb to fulfill God's commands and law, could not have any of his bones broken because he was that sacrificial lamb. Again, in Numbers uh, chapter 9, verse 12, they must not leave any of it uh, until morning or break any of its bones. When they celebrate the Passover, they must, fo- fo- they must follow all the regulations. So this was the Passover. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb for the Passover. They had to obey all the regulations. 
Then in Psalm chapter 34, 20, it says, He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Isn't that amazing? That's why the soldiers didn't break his legs. Even in his death, prophecy in the law of God is being fulfilled. And John 19, 36 says, these things happen, and John writes this, these things happen so that Scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Again, Scripture is so precise, giving us the confidence that we can always trust everything that is written in God's Word. Now, once this happens, the body has to be taken off the cross. And normally, the bodies of criminals would be thrown into a common criminal grave. Uh, Most likely, that would be a pit somewhere, probably the Valley of Gehenna. You remember us talking about that a while back. That that was where the city dump was. There was constant fire going on as the fire was burning the the garbage that was constantly being thrown there. Um, That's usually what the Romans did. That's where the criminals were assigned to be disposed of. That brings us back then to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 9, right? He was assigned to a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now, how can he be assigned to both? Well, that's simple enough. The Romans had assigned him to a grave with the wicked. That was normal procedure. That's what they expected, and that's where criminals were assigned in their minds. But God assigned him to a place with the rich, And folks, God's will always trumps man's will. So how does God work that out? And who would care for his body? (laughs) The disciples had fled. Even John had probably gone and joined the other disciples in hiding at that point. The women, they they had resources that were helping in his ministry, but they didn't have the resources at hand to take care of a burial. They're they're from Galilee. They don't have any grave site right there in or near Jerusalem. Who's going to to take care of this? And it had to be done within a couple of hours before 6 p.m. That was important because that would have been the beginning of the Sabbath. Well, God the Father comes to the rescue in a miraculous and amazing way. He often does that, doesn't he? When we're trusting him and, and depending on him, he moves on the heart of a man. And we pick up the scene in verse 57 of Matthew. As evening approached, there came a rich man. Coincidence? (laughs) Not hardly. Isaiah 2,000 years earlier said this was going to happen. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Who is this man? We don't know a lot about him, but we do have a number of descriptions of him from the different Gospels. Mark says in chapter 15, verse uh, 43, that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That means he was a member of that ruling body that convicted Jesus of the crime of claiming to be the Son of God and sentencing him to death. He was a member of that Sanhedrin. And though he was there, Luke tells us in 2351 that, quote, he had not consented to their decision or action. So he had a no vote. Luke also describes him as a good and upright man. Mark tells us he was a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. So this prominent rich man from the town of Arimathea, which was most likely close to Jerusalem, had his own personal tomb just outside of Jerusalem. 
Not only was he a rich man, according to Matthew, he tells us something far more interesting. Joseph, who, quote, had himself become a disciple of Jesus. So Joseph of Arimathea, member of the Sanhedrin, had become a disciple of Jesus. John further explains to us in chapter 1938 that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. So he was learning from Jesus. He was listening to Jesus. He was believing what Jesus said and who he was. And as he observed all that took place in the illegal and unjust trials that he was witness to of Jesus, it became very apparent what the final outcome, very apparent to him that what the final outcome was going to be. And I believe the Holy Spirit laid it on his heart to provide for the burial of Jesus. This was the moment where he became bold for Christ. This was the moment where he stepped out and went public with his faith. See, up to this point, he had been a secretive disciple because he was afraid of what it would cost him. He was afraid of the leaders. As a member of the Sanhedrin, if he found out that he, had, he was actually following Jesus, he would have lost all of his Sanhedrin rights. He would have been the, it would have been the end of his wealth because he wouldn't be able to do business with, with anybody. It would have been the end of his social status. He and his family would probably have been alienated and ostracized. It would be the end of everything. The price would have been so great. But Mark tells us in chapter 15, verse 43, that Joseph went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. He went boldly. He stepped out for Jesus. And something at that moment happened in the heart of Joseph. He had been secretive, living and following in fear, but at the cross... At the cross, God moved in his heart, and he was transformed. Isn't that amazing? The cross of Jesus does that, folks. There's an old hymn called, At the Cross. And the chorus says, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. That's what happened to Joseph, and he stepped out, and he stepped up, and he answered God's call. No longer afraid, no longer secretive, God filled him with a boldness to proclaim openly his heart for Jesus Christ. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of sound mind. How many of us continue to live in fear and therefore are not perhaps stepping out boldly for Christ, doing what God has called us to do? So God moves in this man's heart, a man who secretly follows Jesus, a rich man who coincidentally has a tomb. Isn't that amazing? A new tomb, just a stone's throw from where Jesus was crucified. You know, the more you dig into God's word, the more astounding it is every detail that can be pulled out. And you know, this could not have been a spur-of-the-moment thing for Joseph. He knew Jesus was going to be crucified, and he had to have made plans ahead of time because there's a whole embalming process that had to be done. 
So he had to act quickly. And verse 58 says, Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Now this is 3 o'clock, a little bit after 3. It take, takes a while to bring, bring a body off, down off the cross. Now I want to stop there just a minute because Joseph of Arimathea had help. Can you guess who it was? Nicodemus, right? The man that Jesus had told long time back, you must be born again. John tells us over in chapter 19, 39 and 40, he, talking about Joseph, was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Now, who was Nicodemus besides the man that Jesus talked to? Well, John tells us he was a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish, what, ruling council. So you have two prominent men who were members of the Sanhedrin, who had both been secretly following Jesus, but now in boldness, both of them are stepping out and proclaiming Jesus. Again, reminds me of Paul's words in Romans chapter 10, verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith. And are saved. These two men had believed in their hearts secretly. They had believed in their hearts, but this was the moment they were stepping out and proclaiming and professing their faith, both with their mouths and with their actions. Folks, we, in order for us to be useful, righteous instrument in God's hands, we need to do both. So, Scripture tells us that Joseph got the linens and Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices. You know what's interesting about that? This kind of treatment with that amount of spices was usually only used for royalty. Isn't that interesting? And Matthew says that, uh, excuse me, the purpose of Matthew's whole gospel is to present Jesus as who? The King of Kings. And even in his burial, he is treated with royalty as the true King of Kings. And Matthew says that Joseph placed it, talking about Jesus' body, in his own new tomb that he had cut out from rock. And John adds that it was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Why did he add that comment? Does that really matter? Well, just another note of interest, because kings were always laid in tombs in which nobody else had ever been laid. Details. I love them. John giving a little bit more detail, says, at the place where Jesus was crucified, right there, Golgotha, right where the crosses were, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. They didn't have a lot of time to cart him across the other side of the city or, or some, some other area. Again, they had very little time for two reasons. From the time Jesus was taken off the cross, after 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock, Start the special Sabbath. There's only a couple of hours to do all of this in. So stones throw away from the, from the cross was the garden in which the tomb was located. Again, coincidence? Ah, just happened. Look at that. Isn't that neat? No, it's divine providence. And secondly, from God's perspective, Jesus had to be in the tomb before 6 p.m. 
in order to fulfill Jesus' prophecy of three days and three nights. One more verse. Verse 61. Tells us there was a second group of people. The second group were also used by God to give evidence of the deity of Christ. The verse says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The other Mary being the mother of James and Joseph. These two had been at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. Now they may very well have helped Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in the embalming process. It doesn't tell us, but it's fairly good assumption to make if you want to make that assumption. But then it, they definitely followed them to the tomb and sat there watching as the two men placed Jesus into the tomb, rolled that big rock across the front. You say, well, is that really significant? So, so they were sitting there. I actually think it's a powerful, there's a powerful significance here. They're just sitting there in deep sorrow and deep grief because their Lord had died. And if Joseph of Arimathea is used by God to confirm the deity of Christ through fulfilled prophecy, I believe that these two women are used to confirm the deity of Christ through first-hand testimony as eyewitnesses. And the reason this is significant is that in chapter 18, verse 1, we read, after the Sabbath, that's that, that word that I was talking about, after the Sabbaths, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. They were the first ones at the tomb being eyewitnesses to the burial of their Lord, and they were the first, the primary eyewitnesses to see the tomb empty, the resurrection of Jesus. But not only did they see the empty tomb, but as they're running to tell the disciples, who did they run into? They ran into Jesus. Can you imagine that? Probably can because you've experienced him. But you see, our, our lives cannot be transformed until we run into Jesus, the living Jesus. We cannot experience a new life in Christ without a relationship with him. We cannot boldly proclaim his name in word and action until he becomes Lord of our life. But so often we're afraid. Remember, God has given us a spirit of power of love, and of sound mind. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.19 that for us who believe, we have his incomparably great power. We have it. His incomparably great power within us. And that power, Paul says, is the same as a mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That same power that raised Jesus from the grave That same power that commands the dead to wake lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when he speaks, the same power that can calm a raging sea lives in us because he lives in us. Folks, God had to work in the hearts and lives of those two men and those two women 
and did something so amazing that it transformed their lives to be bold for Jesus. Folks, they were bold. Think about it. They were bold for Jesus with him dead in their arms. How much bolder should we be when he's alive and he's living in our hearts? It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. Father, this morning, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for how you are so precise in your word that we can always stand on your word. It is the rock that does not move, the firm foundation. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be bold for Jesus because we've got Jesus living in our hearts. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that you used to raise Christ from the dead. We've got that same power. Father, I pray that all fear that may be lingering in us, that you just might push that aside, push it away, and that we may go forward with no fear. We would go forward with boldness to proclaim Jesus Christ in word and in action so people can see Jesus and see, uh, people can experience Jesus, and therefore you'll be able to draw them to yourself. So, Father, use us, change us, transform us for your glory, for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.